So this is a session on Australian science fiction fandom in the first half of the 1970s. Originally we were going to talk about the events of the 1970s up to and including AussieCon, the first Australian World Science Fiction Convention, but we made a list of so many things to talk about before then that we're going to stop before we get there. And for the three of you who come next year, we'll talk about <laughs> the Levin Writers' Workshop and AussieCon and what followed on from AussieCon. So let me um, start off by introducing the panel, who you all know. Yeah, we have Robin, Bruce and Rob. There you go. Who are you? Oh, my name's Lee Edmonds. I'm a historian. I'm, in theory, working on the history of Australian science fiction fandom from about 1930-something through to the 1970s, <laughs> which I'll get back to at some stage. At least the effectuator of this panel. I want, to, I want to alert you to the fact that the University of Iowa Press is publishing a book in October, I think it's being launched in person in December, called Aussie Fans, and it's actually about fandoms in Australia. Only one fandom is the fandom we're going to talk about today. There is uh, media fans, there's... Uh, what are they call costumers, uh, cosplay, uh, people who watch television, whatever is considered media studies by current academia. Entirely by accident, I wrote a chapter, which is the first chapter in the book, which is actually about Australian science fiction fandom through till 1966, and stands out like a sore thumb because it's not like any other chapter in the book and doesn't use any of the theoretical concepts in the rest of the book. But if you're interested... Um, you can buy a copy for um, 55 American. <laughs> I don't recommend it. That would be 80 Australian. No, it would be a lot of money. And by the time you... Can we get your chapter? And $100 postage. Yeah, well, no, you this is interesting. You can buy the, uh, the book for $55 or you can buy the e-book for $55. Oh. So, <laughs> so we've moved into the 21st century. But let us go back to the 1970s. There are two areas that we want to cover. One is the growth of professional science fiction in Australia and the other one is the growth of fandom in Australia and the things that occurred in the first half of the 1970s which led almost inevitably to AussieCon. Can I start off by talking about the development of professional writing in Australia in the 1970s? And there's a number of areas to cover. One of them that Rod could talk about is, as far as we know, the first writers' workshop held at a convention was... In, uh, at Easton 1974 at OzCon in the Victoria Hotel. What are your memories? Well, before I try and remember my memories, um, <laughs> Lee Harding ran that workshop uh-huh. and Lee was going to be on this panel but unfortunately he had a, a heart fibrillation and he's in hospital for the, under observation now. Bill Wright was also going to be here. He's also in hospital so it's a... He's back. He's back now? No, he's, he, he's back in hospital. Yeah, 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 yeah that's what we're saying. Yeah, no, he, he's he, back there on July the seventh. So. He's in there for a few weeks. Yeah. So he it's obviously a, a um, endangered thing being on this panel last year because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you and I are still okay for the moment. <laughs> for the moment. Yeah. Remember, put it in context. If you guys aren't here now, this area will never be covered publicly. No, that's right. <laughs> okay. So. So. Lee, I think, had the idea to run a writer's workshop. He was one of the few active professional science fiction writers in Melbourne at the time. And I think he'd looked at what was happening in the States and decided to try and emulate it. And he asked people who had worked to submit it. And then he chose a group of about, I think about a dozen of us, maybe 15. Um, All I can remember is that Lee 
was very, very disparaging of the story I presented, which was about... <laughs> it was a, about a, a hero of a series of science fiction and fantasy adventures who sat down to have a coffee and discovered he's on the same table as the writer of his stories and was berating the writer for the um, inaccurate way he was portraying his own life. So that's all I could recall from my story. But Lee, having prompted me to think about it, I'm going to try and see if I've got it there and rework it, because it's a good idea for a story. That workshop led to Bruce and Kerry Hanfield working out how can we get another writer's workshop in the following year, 75, which is Le Guin ended up coming out to Australia for the Worldcom. And as Bruce will tell us, she wouldn't have come if there hadn't been a writer's workshop for her to impart some of her great skills. That's absolutely true. Well, this is Robin's story, really. Oh. Yeah, yes. The year before the world, uh, before AussieCon in 75, the Worldcon was in Washington. And I was there, and because... Um, because Ursula Le Guin was to be our guest of honour for 1975, and she was not at the Worldcon, and she won a Hugo for, I forget which story, that particular year. They asked me to ring her up and tell her she'd won and uh, all that. And she, I got on to her and she said, Oh, Robin, I thought you were in Australia. I, I wrote to you a few days ago, uh, to you and to Bruce, to say, I'm sorry, I won't be able to, to come next year. And, you know, my jaw sort of dropped. And for the next hour, I was on the phone trying to convince her that she, she really had to come. And at some point, it crossed my mind that the, this writer's workshop idea that had been talked about a bit before I left could be, uh, could be the thing. And uh, basically, I said to her, if we can get... Uh, I probably didn't use the words Australia Council because that was very new or possibly hadn't even existed at the no, time. Didn't, yeah. But if we can get some sort of government grant to help, can you, and this implied her husband and her kids as well, come uh, to Australia? The reason that she produced for not being able to come was that her husband, who was an academic, was taking a sabbatical year in '75 and going. He was, a, uh, he was a professor in medieval French, I believe, and they were going to France. And basically, I, I said to her, don't make travel plans until we've had time to see if we can whip this up. And Bruce basically organised the, the writer's workshop, which she was to lead, for, I think, a week. Yes, it was uh, a week, before, yeah. Sometime before the convention. Except I was an excuse for her to come to the convention. Yeah, well, she virtually demanded that that was her. Uh, she wouldn't come here unless there was a writers' workshop as well. So then I, I had not the slightest idea how to. The finger was pointed at me. And no idea how to organise anything. So Kerry came on board, and of course Kerry Hanfield is very good at organising things. So in uh, December. 74, we, we toured the hills of, uh, around the Dandenongs to try and find a place where we could hold it, and we found the, the perfect place. It was called Booth Lodge. It was actually a Church of England place, and it was perfect conditions for the winter conditions, as it would be. So, OK, we booked that. We then had to get the money. Now, I forget how and um, who actually wrote... I think it was Kerry who wrote all the uh, applications for 
for grants. That was the essential thing, was to get that money. And, that, and that once that came through, which must have been early 75, off we went. And then, of course, it was a matter of advertising. Uh, we trying to find people who were going to come to be our writers. And we tried everywhere. We tried Fellowship of Australian Writers, uh, Australian Society of Authors, and because of this, a lot of the people who actually turned up had never heard of science fiction fandom or conventions or whatever. They just wanted to do a writer's workshop with Le Guin. So it was a very interesting group of people who, who turned up. Yeah. So I was one of the people who went to that workshop and we all had to submit a story. Yes. And that was the basis of which I think Ursula then decided there's about 18 of us, were there? Yeah, or? I think so, something like that. And out of the group... There was a range of people who published after it. Petrina Smith, Pip Madden, Ted Mundy, Randall Flynn, myself. Was yeah. Wynn there? No, 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 no. No, no Wynn wasn't there. No. Um, the guy called Cliff, Cliff, uh, Chris, no, Cliff Green came for the first day, saw the rest of us and then left. <laughs> He became a famous Australian yes, television writer. Yes, after that he wrote two writer. or three of the top Australian films of the 70s. <laughs> but they all, they all knew who Ursula was, right? Sorry? They all knew who Ursula was. Yes, yes. yes. Oh, yeah. They might yeah. yeah. And it, was a, it was a wonderful workshop. And, uh, yeah, we you know, extended further into the future than I intended us to extend today because we want to talk well, about... Let's, let's go back in time on yeah, our, our go, time machine. The other, the other factors influencing the publication, the writing of science fiction in Australia, was really the lack of a publishing industry. Yes. Uh, what attempt, uh, apart, we can talk about an Australian press, but um, what other publishing was going on in Australia to encourage writers in the um, first half of the 1970s? The same time as we did in, in 75. After the, they started after the Aussie Con. So, so there was no... Smith was editor yes. of uh, that... Uh, um, I've forgotten the name of the magazine, Man, Man Magazine. For a little while, but that was in the late 60s, early 70s. He, he, yeah. so, so are we talking about a, um, a, a, an aspiring writing public that didn't have a, a place to publish? Basically, I mean, the, the writers that turned up at the convention were people who published in IF or New Worlds or whatever overseas. They didn't uh, publish in Australia. And, and the only thing was uh, there was a bit doing from Angus and Robertson in Sydney, uh, they did the Pacific Books of Australian SF, uh, edited by uh, Baxter. And then uh, Ron Smith was at Horwitz as editor. He tried four titles, which uh, they, they just sort of failed. There, there was very, very yeah. little publishing at all in Australia. Damien Broderick um, had his first collection of short stories, A Man Returned, That's that, right. that Horwitz published. Yeah. Um, but if you were a writer of science fiction in Australia, your market was outside Australia yeah. until an Australia Press and Corian Collins got going. Yeah. With an Australia Press, it came out of, and Bruce can probably, we will tell the story at the next panel in more detail, but when ASFR ceased publication, John Banks oh, had handed yeah. a whole lot of stuff yeah. over to Bruce, including some essays Bruce had written about Philip K. Dick. Oh, that became right. the core of Philip K. Dick, Electric Shepherd, which was the first Australia press book. And that came out at the time of the 75 convention, and the printer who printed that also printed the convention booklet and stuffed up the whole printing and binding of it so that only half the copies arrived. But on the strength of Philip Dick, Electric Shepherd, that put an Australia press on the map. Um, Bruce 
and Carrie Hanfield had produced that together. I then joined and we became a triumvirate yeah. to then start publishing. And the first book we did was The Altered Eye, a collection mm. of the stories written by people at the Ursula Le Guin workshop, which then Berkeley Books in the States republished. Yeah, yeah. But Lee would like to go back. Well, no, I want to go back to 1970 now. <laughs> because, because what we've explored in 15 minutes is the fact that there was no science fiction in Australia, but there was a science fiction fandom in Australia. Yes. And I want to begin the 1970s. Uh, Bruce, were you at... Uh, well, sorry, Robin was on the committee organising the convention in Sydney in 1970, which really started yes. the ball rolling. Yes, it was the New Year's weekend, and uh, it was held in a scout hut... In a suburb, well, Scout Hall, yeah, yeah. Scout Hall, yeah, well. yeah. And one of one of the people on the committee um, helped me. Someone, though, am I? Am I Rosner? No, no, no Ken... meaning the co- the comic expert. Uh, oh, Gary Mason. No, 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 the other one. Ken Smith. Uh, uh, John, John Ryan. Ryan. John Ryan. Yes. Knew all the comic artists in Australia and invited them, and they, when I say all, about four. Well, it was impressive anyway. Yes. It was everyone anyone had heard of, and in a in a hall not much bigger than this room, you know, to have Australia's comic artists all there basically uh, was was pretty darn impressive. And uh, John, this was before John Ryan published his book, of course, but uh, I'm having another senior moment. I've forgotten what the book was called. Panel by Panel. Oh, Panel by Panel, yeah. Panel by Panel, yes. Uh, John's no longer with us, sadly, but uh, in fact, the other day I found a picture of the six of us who were on the committee. And John Brosden, who went to England and is no longer with us. There's me, who went to Tasmania subsequently and, and here. There's Gary Mason who went to Adelaide. Uh, and he's still here in the sense of this this earth. Uh, who have I left out? John Ryan. Peter Darling. Peter Darling, who went to Melbourne and is no longer with us. It's, uh, don't run conventions, people, it's fatal. <laughs> the other thing that happened at um, Syncon 70 was the discussion, the initial discussion on whether Australia could hold a World Science Fiction Convention yeah. in 1975, which led, I don't remember this, apparently I then published six, six issues of a fortnightly sort of newsletter zine in which the existing fans in Australia discussed the thing. I think the decision had already been made. It's just we want to go through the formality of... Yeah. Foister had decided. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm? What happened to Australia in '73? I remember. No, it was Australia in '83. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it was Sydney in '83. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry. If I remember <laughs> rightly, the formal decision to set it up was at the Easter Con in '70s. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But this was the period between January and Easter when we were pushing these bits of paper back and forth. One of the key things that helped sell the idea was we made a movie. I say we, meaning Australians, did. Yeah. John Litchin. John, John, John Litchin made the movie. And Paul, we nowhere without him. Yeah. And, and it's called, it is uh, now, yeah, yeah. called Aussie Fan. And that was screened at the... What was it called? Aussie Fan. Aussie Fan or Andy Fan? Andy Fan. Sorry, Andy Fan. Andy yeah. Fan, yeah. 
Well, we started off with a letter which Andy Porter sent to John Bankson in 1966, and he had a little cartoon at the bottom. Australia, uh, I don't know whether he's Melbourne in 75, I think it said. No. And, and that gave John Bankson the idea, and John was talking about it then in ASFR for the whole period of the magazine. I have so a different memory of this. Okay, right. You Carly, probably have I was of... living in a slang shack, that is a, a place where science fiction fans lived, named after the novel Slam, yeah. um, with John and Diane Bankson and Paul Stevens. This is my memory of it, and so we are. We've been down to sun, Saturday morning, sun, sunny day. We've been down to the laundromat. We come back from the laundromat and there's the mail. Remember when you got mail on Saturdays? Yes. <laughs> we opened it up and there was a, um, the progress report from Nikon 3. And we opened it up and there's on half a page a little thing that says probably Melbourne in 75. Yeah. And we looked at this and we thought, we can do that. <laughs> and, and I think that's my memory. When well, I still recall it was Andy Porter who had had the, uh, had the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually Andy. That's why when Andy was here in the, the latest last of the Aussie cons, I interviewed him. Yes. For my history, because I thought that it would be useful to know Andy Porter uh, to have talked to him. I, the most, and this is on the side, the most astounding thing that I asked Andy and in Australia, if you were going to buy science fiction, you had to hunt for it. You had to go to little second-hand shops. You had to find it at the news agency if you were lucky. I say to Andy, where did you get your science fiction? He said, at the drugstore. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally different world we lived in. So, what are some of the things that Australia did to win a world convention? We've talked briefly about an Aussie, con- Aussie fan film. Anti-fan, yeah. Anti-fan Um, Which I understand is on YouTube, is that right? The other thing that the Australians had started doing in the early 1970s, and Bruce is a major player in this, and I probably was too, is publishing more fanzines than you can poke a stick at. And that was a specific challenge. Well, John Foister was running Australian News which was every fortnight and very, very valuable news because there's no other way of spreading news. No internet. 
And he was encouraging every Australian fan who could sort of wield a duplicator to do their fanzine and to send it overseas. And, of course, you could send your fanzines surface mail for the same price as to send them to anywhere in Australia. They took six weeks to get there, but they got there and they were cheap. So lots of people... uh, Ron Clark in Sydney really uh, got back into action... (coughs) Eric had just started, were you 1970 or late 69? 70, I think. 70. With, yeah, with Gag and, was it Gag and Shine originally? Yes, right. Uh, who were the... Because uh, I'd already started. You were busily doing Updeen fanzines. Foyster was, t- Foyster was still a member of Papa and SAPS, the, the uh, amateur press associations in America. So he was churning out a huge amount. Uh, it was the... Oh, was it? Dennis Stocks in uh, Brisbane? Yeah, was it? yeah, Brisbane, Sydney, fans in Adelaide. Yeah. Um, Adelaide, fans, AD. The capital cities were producing fans were Perth and Hobart. Mm. Uh, Mike O'Brien was producing a Tolkien zine. Oh, that's right, he was doing it, yeah. Produced no. by Paul Nowitzki in Oregon at the time. He had moved back to, yeah, back to the United States. So there was a whole slew of people bombarding the United States with paper. Uh, well, the SFR had started earlier and oh, ceased earlier, but Bankston was producing half a dozen. Well, that's right. He was doing a huge amount, wasn't he? Yeah, for incredible amount. So that a lot of a lot of American fans came to Australia to meet John Bankston. Yes, who had become Australia's preeminent fan writer and wasn't at Aussiecon. <laughs> um, so they all went to um, Canberra to visit him. And also, no, John was at Aussiecon. He was chair of Aussiecon. No, John Bankston. Yeah, he was the Toastmaster at Aussiecon. Was he really? Yes. Yeah. 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 Toastmasters speech on YouTube. Yeah, that's right. If you want to. It's quite amusing, actually. He claims he can't remember because he was drunk at the time, but it's still very amusing. (laughs) So, the other thing that was going on that were fan groups forming in the other capital cities Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, uh, even Canberra, as I recall. Eric, what was doing in Sydney? Yeah, what was going on in Sydney in the early 1970s? Well, the foundation was going. The Sydney, the Sydney yeah, Foundation. The Sydney Science Fiction Foundation were going, but I don't think there was... There were really two groups that were... It was basically Ron Clark doing stuff. Yeah. From what I can remember. Yeah, he certainly was active. The Turing's going. Now, Future into the... Was that Future Turing's got away by then. Yeah. In fact, you're right. The Tolkien Society was doing a lot. Tolkien Society was doing more. Yeah, Sydney. Yeah, Sydney, and there was also a Sydney University Science Association that uh, Van Eyken was... Of course, Van and and, uh, Terry and people like that came out. Yeah, so a whole bunch of people came in. Terry Dowling would have come in through that. Yeah, yeah. Through Enigma, that was Van's magazine. Yeah, which in fact was a fiction fanzine. And wasn't Ron Smith doing stuff as well? Well, not not in fandom. I thought he was had a fan magazine as well. No, Ron, he's never done no, anything. No, no, no. Ron Smith, not, Ron Smith not was selling in the fifties, like yeah. pornography up in the cross. Yeah, <laughs> publishing yeah, it. And then Ron moved Ron, to, to uh, Melbourne. Oh, that's right. Because Ron was Australia's only Hugo winner at the time. Yes, but that was related to a period before he moved to Australia when yeah, he was editor yeah. of Inside. Was Inside, it? yes. Mm. Which I have a near complete set. Ooh, thanks to Ron. Yeah. Thanks to Ron. Yeah. 
in fact, Lee wrote several texts for a couple of Ron's yeah, more interesting publications. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, nothing exciting happened in them. They were black and white, but they were very tasteful. <laughs> so, we've, um, Mark or Roman, what? you weren't yeah. there at the time, but you would... Mark. Okay, I, I missed the foundation, the founding of the Adelaide University Science Fiction Association. Uh, in 1970, I was at Adelaide Uni, and I was part of the Science Association there, and they ran a science fiction weekend, which I didn't get to, but that was where OSFER got oh. founded. So in 1970, they got that founded, and uh, as a result of that, they ran screens of things like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I went to, and that was the second place where I discovered Ozicon. Mm. The first place having been a Ted White editorial in Fantastic. <laughs> so, OSPO got started, Roman will, uh, I think, 71. We think 71, and that had people like uh, Alan Sandico, Paul yeah. Stokes, Mike Clark, uh, uh, Monica Addington. We also uh, have Joy Window, Joy Window yeah. Paul Day, and an Paul Day, yeah. and the Black Hole Bookshop. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually. Eventually. At that time, he was yeah. working at the uni. Yeah. In the that, department. That brings up the other thing that one of the key things that happened in Melbourne was the opening of the Space Age Bookshop. Yes, of course, yeah. Um, which pervaded science fiction in a way that hadn't been available in Australia before. Do we have any memories of Space Age? Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, right, right. I can remember well, was moving the into the Beehive building, was it? Yeah, Which something is, like that. Uh, it's just across the road office. from, uh, from uh, Merv's original employer. Are there any of you here went to Space Age? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. What are your memories of it? Oh. No, I was there once when some guy who stole something off the street hid in the back of there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and Justin threw him out. <laughs> How important was uh, Bruce? How well, incredibly important because you still hear people sometimes on radio remembering. Oh, uh, if there's a discussion of bookshops, people say, oh, "I remember Space Age from the, you know, the, from the 80s because uh, it didn't close till '85." Now, the, the thing is, it grew out of the, the chucking out of the Melbourne Science Fiction Club from Somerset Place mm. in late 1970. That's right, because. It was a dire danger of burning down. They were running nitrate films upstairs in a place in which nobody could escape from if any fire started. The whole place would have burned down in a second. So it had a, bloke, a lift, but it was a hydraulic lift. Which had broken down. It had hydraulic power. <coughs> no, it also had broken down a year before. It wasn't <laughs> operating. So a bloke called Len Jensen, and poor old Dick Jensen was blamed for years afterwards. There was a bloke called Len Jensen who himself was a uh, projectionist who dobbed them, in, dobbed them in to the city council and they closed the place immediately. So they had a few weeks to get everything out and as you say, all they could do is move into a room at one of, one of the old Melbourne buildings for the time being. It was but, the Beehive building, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that's what... Themselves. My, my recollection is that Merv actually took a lease on a couple of rooms several floors up in the beginning yeah, yes, yeah. which is the other side of Elizabeth Street and a bit near a Flinders Street station yeah well, that he was hasn't just... been there for more than a few months but he no was because looking... he managed to get the money from Ron Graham to set up Space Age Books and uh, in 19... I don't know when it started Anybody... 70 I think well no it's in 71 I just can't remember which month but uh, and they st- it was what was up Swanson Street. It was quite a narrow place, the first uh, Space Age, but uh, it was uh, 
It was welcomed by all. And the point is that the club could then move into the room above the, the shop. And that's where the, the club was for the library. Yeah. So, so Merv Beans had been working at a news agency called McGill's, which yes. was a big importer of science fiction. He got the money and set up Space Age Books. Lee Harding worked yes. for him there. And so I think actually every, Justin worked there for Almost everybody did at one stage or another. If they were out, on their, out in their luck, they got a job at Space yeah. Age for a while. But I, th- I think one of the key things why Melbourne fandom got so active was having the, the aim to get... Aussiecom in 75 gave people five or six years of, of a reason to congregate and do stuff beyond the normal stuff that everybody does in <clears> fandom. And there were a whole range of activities so that Lee, I think, one stage said, look, I'm going down to, to Gray's Tavern for a meal. He yeah. wants to come. And that became a regular weekly place where people could go and have the um, rather drinkable red that they served there. Well, right, but you could come away with a very good hangover. <laughs> there, was, there was a monthly fantasy film society that evolved out of the old nitrate films, which was screened at the Madeline restaurant downstairs at, um, off Collins Street, where I remember seeing Beauty and the Beast for the first time, and uh, wow. the projectionist had... Sto- I'm not sure if he'd stolen or... He seemed to gathered together a whole collection of 16mm films, which he screened for us. Oh, that's right, the Bob Johnson collection. Yeah, but he'd also cut scenes out of some of the big Hollywood musicals when he'd been screening them. So the film went back minus a scene out of uh, Singing in the Rain, for example, which he kept in his own archive. And apparently this was a common practice around the world with certain projectionists. So you had all these different activities going on, which meant that people came and could be part of fandom in all different sorts of ways, not just out of their love of science fiction where you might start, but you could be interested in films, or you could be interested in having a good drink, or you could be um, interested in all the other activities. Mm. You've got a the, list of them there. Oh, well, the, the other thing that we need to mention is the introduction, the beginning of media fandom in Australia, with the um, screening of Star Trek in, what, 67? 67. Yeah. Um, and also a growing awareness, because Doctor Who had started a couple of years, years earlier, but a fan following developed around Doctor Who as well. So that in 1970 at the Sydney Convention, SinCon 70, Trekkies turned up. We were not allowed to call them Trekkies, but uh, Shane McCormick and uh, Sabina Heggie and women turned up at a science fiction convention, which was almost unheard of. <laughs> um, but it began to change the nature of fandom. Very rapidly, yeah. Very rapidly, yeah. partly because they were actually female-type persons. And, <laughs> and unattached. Oops. And unattached. That would be amazing. So that, um, but they had different interests. The other thing was that they wrote fiction in their fanzines, which to uh, uh, real science fiction fans was a very strange thing to do. So, in fact, the fandom that we are sitting at this convention grows out of two forces. One is media fandom, which begins in the early 1970s, and the other one is out of the writers' workshop and the writing and Australian movement. Those two things, that and the internet, which we won't be discussing, (laughs) um, have changed fandom in ways that are totally different. So the fandom now has totally different emphasis to what it has now. So is anyone here, was anyone here involved in the early media fandom? Yes. Oh, right, yes. Speak up. Well, um, I got involved in media fandom a bit after AussieCon. I was too young to go to AussieCon, but... um, I was one of the, not the original generation of Star Trek fans, but I sort of got involved in the mid-70s when I was about 14, and we got 
we went to the Bob Johnson Bridge Marathons to the Star Trek films, and we, we started off um, off track. And mm. from there, we saw a number of other groups starting the Doctor Who Club, lots lots of media um, groups from there. And yes, it's certainly women were probably 50% of the membership, but they were a, a dominant part of the membership. They became presidents and, co and committee members of the clubs and they, the fanzines. They wrote the fiction and they edited the fanzines. They, they ran conventions, yeah. they did all sorts of things. I mean, I just noticed the demographics out there in the hallway. Yeah. You know, the early science fiction conventions were what, 90%, 95% male? Well, in 68 when I had my first one, yeah, you would have yeah, to say Yeah, they changed the demographics of science fiction conventions immensely. The other thing that we needed to talk about was the, uh, the critical side of science fiction because Australian Science Fiction Review had started this reputation in Australia of being a great centre of criticism of um, science fiction and also the uh, North Australia Press that we talked about begins on criticism. Yes. How important was that? Well, of course, because I was so involved uh, through the fan. But uh, the reason is because of... Uh, well, it seems to me George Turner in ASFR calling the shots in, in mid-67 and saying all the old, uh, you know, just challenging all the old authors, all the classic authors, and people getting extremely upset and, and sending in lots of letters of comment and, and you're getting quite a bit of discussion there. The other thing is that John, well, John Foister had... I think far more greater ambitions for ASFR than ever John Bankson had. John Bankson, superb writer about people and whatever. I don't think he's ever very interested in science fiction, but he loved the whole fanzine thing of connecting with overseas people. But Foister saw something extra, and he made or made contact with us. Uh, was a bloke called Franz Rottensteiner who lived in uh, in Austria, and he become the uh, he he become the agent. For Stanislav Lem, uh, a, a, an author from Poland who none of us knew much about until Franz started talking about him. And for, as part of his campaign to get Lem known in the West, Franz started sending essays by Lem, which just didn't have any market in, in uh, commercial market, to fanzines, especially to those John Foister was associated with. So starting out in ASFR, then in John's own little magazine, Exploding Madonna, which he only did, what, 18 copies or something, but it went all, to all the right people. And then John handed all this stuff to me when I started SF Commentary. So I was handed this, this motherload of amazing stuff, which got Americans so upset. It was wonderful. All these letters of comment pouring in bloody limb, you know, <laughs> friends, how can he say those things about America? Are you talking about the Lem Affair? When, Pardon? Are you talking about the Lem Affair? When before, before the Lem Affair, okay. because we're talking about from 70 through the Lem Affair, which I think was 74. Because that's when he was kicked out of Sapphire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that started out as an article I published called Science Fiction, A Hopeless Case with Exceptions. <laughs> and the only exception that Lem would allow was Philip K. Dick. And that's why I like <laughs> And, and of course, this got, and, and got, I got letters of comment from Philip Hosef Farmer and also Sandra Measle and all sorts of people who got extremely upset and they all sort of started arguing with each other. And that's probably the basis of the, the only Hugo nominations I've ever got for <laughs> those two or three years. But the thing is that when people got here in 75, 
Yes, they wanted to meet John Bankson because they knew he was this jolly guy, which in a way he wasn't. He was really quite shy in lots mm. of ways. The person they met who was really, really rather more like John Bankson than John Bankson was Lee Harding, who wanted to meet everybody. And the person who terrified everybody here and there was George Turner. But a lot of people did come to, just to, to meet George Turner as well. And so there was this basis of... And the reason for the critical... Uh, which is because there was nothing going on until 73 in America when science fiction studies started. Extrapolation had started for the college market in, in the mid-60s. But basically there was nowhere for academics to send this stuff mm. except... The, uh, the uh, critical fanzines, either Speculation in America or Science Fiction Review, Geiss's Magazine in America or, to me, after, after ASFR closed down. And there's very few other magazines. There's Jeff Smith's fanzines. That's how he got in contact with James Tiptree Jr., that whole story. In so, dealing with that time, though, I yeah. think, talking about Ozicon, you need to also talk, Lee, a little bit about that. Of course, yes. Well, all the, all the big events, yes. Well, in fact, we're um, running out of time. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, uh, the thing that we need to talk a little bit about was the, some of the people and some yeah. of the activities that some of the people went to. And so there is this uh, business of, and I suppose I should talk about this, the business of before sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, the only way to communicate with people overseas was by going there because um, mail, the only thing you could write takes a you know, two or three weeks yeah, yeah. turn around. So, in 19, as part of John Foister's master plan for running the World Science Mission Convention in Australia, he invented a thing called the Down Under Fan Fund, which was modelled on the Transatlantic Fan Fund, which the uh, European, uh, which the British and American fans had been running for what almost a decade. Yeah. So the three, I think. 50, 53 or 54, yeah. 1953, I think, was the Yeah, yeah. Bad-handing anyone I could find. We also set up a table at um, Discon 2, which was the World Science Fiction Convention in Washington, D.C. that year. We had a little table, and various people sat there and sold memberships to AussieCon as well, so that we promoted that way. The other thing that we did was we made Australian fandom seem, well, legendary, as many ways yeah. it <laughs> by telling stories about each other. Yeah. So that when you wrote a fanzine, you wrote about what fellow fans did so there'd be trip reports where you'd write about this fabulous time you had driving to Sydney for this convention and you'd go on about all the personalities you'd, you'd met there but some of the uh, personalities came together in what the, these slant shacks these um, community houses of fans and the most legendary of them which only lasted about a year and which Robin was involved in at the yeah. beginning was yeah. no it was in Carlton 252 Drummond Street some number oh, of I Drummond certainly Street. don't remember the number I went by <laughs> I know when you uh, when you answered the phone, it, it, it was uh, Bendigo Paving. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, the uh, the most famous night there was when someone whose name had better not be mentioned had 
possibly not accidentally, hung the flag upside down, and we got raided by the police. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was called the Magic. It was called, it was called the, the Magic, magic Pudding Club, and basically it was Don Ashby and whoever uh, was sta- who he invited to stay there, including various girlfriends, and, uh, and it was basically a non-stop party. And by the end of it, I and poor old Don was. <laughs> He just could not say no to anybody who turned up on the doorstep. So you had about a year, a year and a half of this. This, And you could go around. I was just living around the corner in Carlton Street. I could wander around any time and there'd be something going on, people to talk to, even, even if Don wasn't home. It was quite an amazing place. So there, were groups, so there were groups of fans all over the place who were, in fact, the Magic Pudding Club started to become written up in places so that mm. uh, so that people wanted to go and see the desert denizens who lived in this place. <laughs> so that it was all sort of tailored to, although it's a natural sort of fanny's trait to um, emphasise the strangeness, the you know, characteristics of fans to make them larger than life, yeah. um, so that we created this kind of myth around what Melbourne fandom was like. So and the anti-fan film uh, helped enormously. Yeah, yeah, yeah helped. We, we should say we haven't said about the anti-fan film that it went over for seventy. Uh, yeah, for seventy-two, it was then carried by Jack Chalker, who has since died some years ago. But Jack Chalker even then wasn't an author; he was a fan. He, he tried was a bibliographer. to bibliographer. Well, whatever. He tried to go to every convention he could anywhere around America. He took the film with him and he showed it sometime, uh, I think that year, about 40, 45 weekends of that whole year because he just kept travelling. And uh, that, that had an enormous amount of uh, publicity yeah, he for won us. He the convention, there's yeah. no doubt about that. And, by the time, and, and what we haven't said, of course, was that 1973, when we actually put our bid in, when about 20 of us travelled across to Torcon, Toronto Convention. And, uh, yeah, well, uh, Eric was there. I'm not sure who else in this room was. was and, and then we all spread out across America, staying with people, because that's what fandom was all about. You could stay with people, and, uh, again, that had an enormous amount to do with... Uh, well, we'd already won the bid. Now we wanted people to turn up at the conventions. And the other thing we haven't talked about is sex and drugs and rock and roll. Oh, well, leave me out. There's a lot of music around. <laughs> Was there much in Melbourne? Well, people were buying records. No, people weren't performing. <laughs> it wasn't punch rock and roll. It was more classical from what Bruce writes. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm talking about... Uh, 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 we didn't have FM at that stage. So you just got the most dreadful uh, ordinary pop on on radio, but people had this communication networks, especially in fandom. Have you heard this record? Have you heard this record? And people swapped it. And the import shops were going, Disc Shop and um, Archie and Jugheads. Mm. You could buy all this fabulous stuff and coming in quite cheaply. So yeah, there was a, yeah, a lot of music which people were sharing with each other. Was there much drugs at the Magic? Well, I would have... You know nothing about that. No, no. I know nothing about that either. <laughs> I don't remember. Then that made me. Awesome. I think marijuana wasn't unknown. Yes. <laughs> but the only other drug of choice was alcohol. <laughs> alcohol was consumed in yes. by the gallon. Yeah, yeah, fair by enough. Liter, sorry, by the gallon. So, <laughs> can I just sort of sum up this period? by asking each of our panellists to just recount 
one or two of their favourite memories from the uh, early 1970s. Do you want to start, Robin? I have some dreadful memories. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of a good... My, uh, well, I don't know if this is good or bad, but when the... There was a whole group of Americans who... Uh, oh, we're talking about early 70s. Yeah. Right? Yes, yes. So I shouldn't talk about oh, no, Actually, Robin, talk about what it was uh, like in Toronto uh, getting I, the bid. I wasn't at Toronto. No, he wasn't there. Uh, I, I was were... leading the delegation. Oh, really? yeah. Now, was it, was it at LA Con where you had... Which one was L- it? LA Con to LA Con. was where we first showed the movie. Yeah. Bill Wright and I were... The, and we had a... Uh, the, the convention was at a hotel near the airport... But it had an open-air pool over which planes flew every 45 seconds. Uh-huh. Uh, and we were not part of the main building. But, of course, a lot of people came to swim. And fairly early on, after we had the film on the official program on the first day, I think it was, we started showing it in our room. The result was neither Bill nor I got any sleep, at least not in our own beds, <laughs> the rest of the convention. Uh, and there were occasions in which... If you actually even sat on the bed, it was wet because wet people off the pool come <laughs> to sit and watch the movie. Um, so thank you, John Lynch. <laughs> yes. And I caught up to sleep about a week later. Um, Bruce, you were there when we won the bid. I can't tell the main story, I'm afraid. Of, of that connection. <laughs> no, tell me later. Yes, yes. Oh, that, that involves sex, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Ah, but, yes, uh, we won the bit. There are, <laughs> no, no, there are rumours. Getting to America was, uh, yeah, quite uh, amazing. But uh, my, my favourite magic book, well, there are two things. One, I was absolutely hopeless at organising anything. So, in fact, everybody took over every aspect of running the workshop, including the whole Magic Pudding Club. They did all the uh, photocopying of the stories so that they'd be ready for people to read. They did all the transporting up to Booth Lodge. Uh, David Grigg did <laughs> his most extraordinary... They just said, oh, they just shunted me to one side. And even when I got up there, I was allowed to write, and everybody else simply organised themselves around me. <laughs> so, uh, but the, like that means you organised it properly. You didn't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, my favourite magic pudding story was, of course, to, to do with the Nova Mob, which we haven't even mentioned, which was Melbourne's SF discussion group, which was... Uh, had a couple of years off but then got going in 74 and 75 again but at the Magic Pudding Club one night Derek Ashby offered to give a talk about Tolkien what we didn't know is he was going to he read to us uh, his uh, essay which he'd done for college about Tolkien all of it it took about two hours (laughs) and in the end Don took uh, sort of people gradually drifted into the kitchen with Don (laughs) it was was just voices sitting and sort of completely comatose and the rest of us really <laughs> so that's probably my favourite well I think being part of the, the workshop Ursula Gwynn gave us several devices to help oh, that's right, stimulate yeah. writing stories one was there were words in, in a hat or a box or something and you pick out two words my two words were healing and orgy <laughs> which, is a, which is a great way. So I wrote a story called The Healing Orgy, which ended up in The Altered Eye. And Lee Harding was putting together the collection, and I helped him, which I think is how I got into being a partner in Australia Press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we had all these different stories that had been written at the workshop or submitted to the workshop, and they formed the bulk of the book, and Ursula herself wrote a story, 
which is in the book, and I wrote the um, descriptive connecting links between each section explaining what was going on. And the book, I think, has a life as a, um, a manual how to run a good writer's workshop. And uh, I think in the States they still use it in some places like oh, that. It's a, yeah, yeah. a really good book. Well, if you put that together, the one that George did for the second, The View from the Edge, yeah. I mean, you've really got a, a, a two-volume manual is how to, how to run the workshops, yeah. Right, thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, finally, has anyone got any closing comments they wish to make before I summarise? One very quick thing. Don Tuck in Tasmania had been a bibliographer yeah. and was uh, been he published uh, basically a, a list of all the stories in which magazines they were up to that date and he was uh, supposed to be the fan guest of honour at AussieCon and he never turned up mm-hmm. and some of the people that came over from the States were so keen to meet him that they went on down to Tasmania but uh, that was one of the was regrets I had about the convention yeah Sorry. That was a big ask in the 70s, John Tasmania. <laughs> Still is. But it was then. It was then. But to reverse the expression, to put Tasmania on the map. <laughs> so, the, the first half Sorry, of the, took his passport. Yes, yes. The first half of the 1970s was a period of frantic and diverse activity in Australian science fiction fandom, leaving up to a four-day extravaganza. Yes, I think it was four days. 1975. Yeah. Um, The history that I'm writing of the Australian fandom will finish at AussieCon, and it finishes at finishes with Ursula Gwynn's guest of honour speech, where she talks about the ghetto of science fiction, which is also the ghetto of science fiction fandom. And she, um, she finished off, or got towards the end of this um, speech, and she said, let's open the gates of the ghetto and let them in. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's exactly what happened is after AussieCon there was a flowering of just about every aspect of Australian fan- science fiction and science fiction fandom the reason in fact that the history won't go any further is it's too complicated for a simple site me to write about yeah, the working class people can you <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the end of that in about five or seven minutes time we're going to move on to the next program item which is me interviewing Bruce Gillespie about SF commentary Thank you.